All right, amen. It's good to see everyone this morning. It's always wonderful to be with the saints, worshiping the Lord. I hope this is your testimony as well. Um, I guess it's been a couple of weeks now. I received a message from someone in the congregation that was, uh, I suppose, um, sensitive to what the Lord may be doing in our hearts and as a church. And and the request was, um, would you consider leading the church into a fast? And uh, I don't don't know that in, in eight and a half years plus of me being the pastor here at Cedarview that we have ever intentionally walked through a fast together. And so I think that this is a particular grace of the Lord Jesus. And uh, so I want to put that to you. We're going to do that this week, okay? Uh, a fast. Now, I don't, I'm not going to tell you how that looks in your life. Some of you have dietary like guidelines that you have to stick to. You don't need to go without eating. And so whatever your fast is going to look like, I just I challenge you to figure that out. And then fast this week until next Sunday when we come together and worship again. Now, obviously, uh, maybe I should remind you, fasting is not about talking about your fast. Fasting is about turning the attention that you would have given to, whether it be food or some other aspect of your life, some other thing that you do, uh, taking that attention that you would give there and give that attention to seeking the Lord, his will, his work in you, revival, whatever it may be. So that's the point. Um, Let's do that this week. Let's do that this week. Take this afternoon, figure it out, and spend all week uh, following through with that fast. And maybe the Lord would visit us in a special way with healing or a special way uh, to unify us. Um, You never know what the Lord may do, but let's seek him this week. Next week, we'll be together. We'll be hearing from Carl Eldridge. He's going to be uh, part one in a three-part Christmas series as best we can. The following week, Sam Henderson will be preaching as well. And then on Christmas Eve, I'll bring a brief word. All of these sermons are going to be coming from John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. So to prepare you for that, that is what's coming up. All right, last week we, we began looking at uh, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And I'm going to remind you, those of you who are guests with us, like I, I should probably apologize for my preaching today um, in advance. Um, we're, we're kind of in survival mode, and if you don't know why, then just talk to a church member after the service. Um, but we're kind of in survival mode and we're just asking the Lord moment by moment, day by day, week by week to just help us rest in him, to continue to seek the word uh, for the truth that God would have for us. So we're going to 1 John chapter 3. Um, We identified a problem last week that Uh, John talks about how the world does not know you because it didn't know him. And we identified a problem in that in our day, the world knows us all too well because we do the things that they do. We fight with their weapons. We 
join in with the, the things that are worldly in so many ways. We don't look like a people who have been truly transformed by the gospel. And so this, this sort of uh, uh, problem is put forth by John, and then he turns to this letter to basically reassure the people of God, those who truly know God, hey, this is how you can examine your own lives, your own hearts, your own minds, and come to the assurance that God intends for you to have. And now, if we take ourselves and, and, and line our lives up with what John says in 1 John, we ought to see some consistency, some strong consistency. The problem is, if we start to see the inconsistencies, we know that full assurance, real assurance, God-given assurance, cannot be ours. There are many people who operate as Christians under the banner of Christ, that is, they claim him, there are many people who operate that way and have a false assurance. When it comes down to the question of, well, how do you know? How do you know that you know God? How do you know that you are considered one of the righteous? How are you sure that your name is written in that Lamb's book of life? How do you know for sure that if you died right now, you'd be with Jesus? And there's a lot of really bad answers to those questions. John is trying to give us the assurance that truly comes from God. Now, we started last week, and we're going to continue in this theme this week. God's true children enjoy assurance from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the title that I'm giving this is Triune Assurance. Assurance from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's read, by way of review, what we covered last week, and then we'll briefly review that point, and then we will continue. 1 John 3, uh, if I can, let's back up again to chapter 2 and verse 28. I want you to notice as we review this first point, the language, children, father. It says, and now little children, abide in him. I remind you, John's writing this as an old man. A lot of young uh, people in the faith that have learned from him, that he's discipled well, Again, generations of disciples have come through the ministry of John. It says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. For you know that he is righteous. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he, can, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I suppose now we can pray. Should have done that at the beginning. Let's pray and then continue. Father, we ask for your help, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand eternal truths, truths to which we cannot arrive on our own. We can't come to understand these things by human effort or natural resources, but we need supernatural resources that come through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, we don't want to belittle the work of the Holy Spirit in making the word known to people. So help us in your Holy Spirit. Enlighten our minds and our hearts. Even peel back the scales of those who do not know Jesus that they could see him as he is. That they would know him in the way that John speaks and writes here. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we began asking a series of questions. The first one from these verses is your practice born of the Father? Is your practice born of the Father? We noted that Christ's work takes away sin. Furthermore, that Christ's work destroys the works of the devil. John is highlighting something he learned from Jesus in John chapter 8. When he talked about how the, the Pharisees, he called them, you are of your father the devil. Now, we need to nail this down. It's a reminder for so many of you, but we kind of, uh, uh, we adopt along with the world the idea that all people are God's children, and that's not the case. They're created by him, so in that sense, we could say that, in, that there are children of God. What, what the New Testament communicates to us is that people are only Children of God, as they come to faith in Jesus Christ, John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. This is a work that God does. He adopts us into the family. He makes us his children. I love how John says right here that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So it's not like, well, God just kind of considers us his children. No, that's not the case. He actually adopts us into his family, never to disown us, never to cast us out. Now, what happens when we get adopted into the family of God is our lives change. 
it, it may be weird to think about like the fact that our father is righteous and then we produce righteous acts. If we're adopted in his family, we start to do things that reflect the character of God. Now, the funny thing is, no one has ever seen God, John 1. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. So we see the the Trinity at work here. Do you know how you know what the Father does? It's because you know what Jesus does. You see, apart from Jesus, you would not know anything about God. What does Jesus say about his father? He says, I only do the works that I see my father doing. And so you may wonder, how do I live a righteous life if I can't even look upon what the father is doing? Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You do what I do. You know, for those of you that that maybe like some of Paul's listeners, when he wrote to the churches, he would say, Hey, look, if you have no idea what Jesus did, maybe you didn't see any of his ministry, maybe you're just getting this stuff from the apostles and you don't have confidence, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So consider this. Okay, if you don't have the vision to see the Father, you won't see the Father. you got to look at Jesus. Okay, maybe if you're not really sure, you don't know Jesus well enough to know as a child of God how he has designed you to act in righteousness, then you have people like Paul. And for many of you, I would argue, you've been a Christian, you've been professing Christ long enough to you ought to be able to say with Paul to other Christians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You know how to live the Christian life? Watch me. Do what I do, because I am living my life under the lordship of Jesus. You start to see how righteousness manifests among the people of God. There's no excuse for a life, a Christian life that is not lived righteously as a child of God. Now, we began with some of these hard truths And it may be that we begin this morning with a little bit of reflection upon that fact. If your life does not reflect the character of Christ, that is, you embrace sin, you realize it. Can you say that you have assurance from God? John says, no. Those who are born of God practice righteousness so is your practice born of the father is your practice born of the father that's where we were last week now secondly is your love derived from the son is your love derived from the son let's continue reading first john 3 verses 11 through 18 for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Listen to that. By this we know love. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Is your love derived from the Son? On the first point, we say, your practice born of the Father, is it from deity or devil? Now we say, is your love derived from the Son? Is it from Jesus or is it from Cain? God's children, to say it as a statement, God's children share this brotherly love. This connects to chapter 3 and verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. This is the the, the love that that makes us his children. It is love that eternally existed within the persons of the Trinity. I'm talking about things I don't even understand. I know you don't understand. Eternal love has existed between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been this way. And when he saved us, he welcomed us into this love so that we could share in this love. I quoted it in Sunday school this morning. He talks about how, look, we have seen and heard, we proclaim Jesus to you, this gospel, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And he says, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, so that your joy may be complete. But see what kind of Love the Father has given to us? This is an altogether unique kind of love. And it's a love that comes from the beginning. You know, it's, a, it's basically a tool to say that this is not new to you. Isn't it interesting, folks? Christian folk, you've been around the church, you've been around the gospel for years and years and years. And it's still so hard to love one another well, isn't it? But John is saying to us, and he's saying to them, hey, this is not a new thing for you. This is what we were taught from the very, very beginning. You love one another. You know how sometimes you play a game? I remember uh, the first time I sat down with my son and started playing chess. I don't play chess. I don't know the rules. Honestly, I think my IQ is too low for me to play chess. Because people that play chess are obviously much smarter than I am. But I remember the first time I sat down with him to play chess, and I was trying to get him to tell me, like, what each piece can do. And, and he would tell me something. And then later, because he was kind of new to the game, and he was like, oh, wait, I think this one can go that way before he makes another move. And I was like, I was like wait, are you making this up as you go along? I need... I need some authoritative person to tell me what the rules are. 
See, John is not like, hey, we're, we're just sort of making this up as we go. He's saying, this is what you have heard from the beginning. It has not changed that we should love one another. And yet the church, again, we're not making this up as we go. It's so hard to love one another. This is what we have been called to from the very beginning. But then he describes in these next verses, 11 through 15, a false love. We could say a false love that's derived from Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. That is, he had the devil as his father. Do y'all get that? From the first point. He did not practice righteousness because he was not born of the father. He followed the father of all lies, which is the devil himself, who was from the evil one, and he murdered his brother, Cain did. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. We may note something right here. The world is working just like Cain, very hard, and it works very hard toward whatever vague concept of salvation that it has, but its deeds are evil. True children of God are hated because their deeds are righteous. The idea, do y'all get this, gospel truth, the idea that we are made acceptable to God by his grace in Jesus Christ, that concept is detestable to the world. And it was detestable to you before you became a believer. You're telling me that nothing I do matters in terms of my standing with God? I can't earn any favor with God. I cannot accept that. I refuse to accept that. That is gospel. That is that gospel is garbage. It is it is foolishness. That's what Paul would say, right? The gospel, that acceptance that comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone is detestable to the world. And Cain is that example. He couldn't accept that his deeds would not be accepted by God. Abel was the one who lived by faith, and his deeds revealed it. The vast difference is evident in love, brotherly love. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this, all people, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This love for the brothers. He's going to say it at the end of this section here. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. I was struck as I was preparing to speak to you today, I was struck at how many times like I have communicated or you have communicated love. Like we need to be careful to follow through on the statement, I love you. We don't need to reserve that, that, that feeling, that idea that concept, that action, we don't need to, to encapsulate that all in a statement. 
We understand we've all had the, the person in our lives that says, I love you, and that love was exposed to, it was exposed to be false. This wasn't a real love. Now, having said that, those that would say that they love the brothers, how is that seen? How is it shown? We could probably preach a whole sermon on, on these many, many things that could be talked about right here. It's hard for me to believe. It's hard for me to believe that somebody that says, I love you, church, I love the saints at Cedarview, but doesn't show up. I mean, the family member that texts you once a year on your birthday and says, I love you, but makes no effort to have a relationship with you, I mean, that's what it feels like. Should, should that have any meaning to me? Y'all have heard me talk a lot about being among the saints of God. I think that is, that is what John is telling us right here. Oh, it's so much more than just showing up. Don't get me wrong. But it's absolutely nothing less than that. <clears throat> Man, last week, last week was a rough week. You all know we worship together. I attempted to speak truth. Um, but you know, last week, it was so tough because on Sunday morning, I just told Sam this this morning. I said, look, Sunday was the first Sunday where I woke up on Sunday morning and I was like, look, the last thing that I want to do is be with the people of God. I was just hurting so much. Is the, the first time in eight and a half years plus where I was not excited about opening the Bible and preaching. And we did it, and you know what y'all did in various ways, more than just one or two, but in various ways, you guys, you recovered me. You recovered me from wherever my heart and my head were going. I felt your love. Your love ministered to me in a way that I, I can't really pinpoint, can't really explain. There's so much that we can say about this, this love for the brothers. My question is, are we doing what we can to show that love for the brothers? Not just saying it. Saying it doesn't mean a lot. Saying it alone doesn't mean a lot. I suppose it's kind of like if you expect to have assurance from just saying that you love church folk, but you never show up or you don't really care what they do or you don't participate in the mission that they have, like that doesn't mean a lot. Just like how the Holy Spirit has to help those who say Jesus is Lord, truly. 
Like anybody can say Jesus is Lord, but it takes the Holy Spirit to say it with meaning. And you know what that meaning looks like? A life that's lived under the Lordship of Jesus. He is my master. I do what he tells me to do. It's that kind of statement. So let's add some weight to that statement. Maybe you're convicted about that. Add the weight to your statement. The only one responsible for showing that love is you. Do you love the brothers? Okay, how do you show it? How do you show it? So there's this false love that's derived from Cain. Cain was a murderer. He hated his brother. Now he shows us in verses 16 and 18, 16 through 18, love derived from Christ. Love derived from Christ. Christ is the key to understanding love. Every other attempt to define love falls short. Verse 16, by this we know love. By this we know love. You heard me emphasize it. We know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I remember when I was early in ministry, I had a young lady wrapped up in the world's psychology. And she had been hurt. She was, you know, navigating faith and whether following Jesus was for her or whatnot. And, and I was like, so tell me what love is then. And she said, well, love is just a, It's a series of signals that are firing off in your brain. I was like, what? I said, no, no. Love is a cross on which the eternal son died. Love is not just a feeling, folks. Fall in love, fall out of love, whatever, garbage. That's not love. Love is the fact that the eternal God chose to enter our uh, sphere, our lives. He entered into the flesh that we inhabit and he lived perfectly ultimately for the purpose of dying on the cross and rising again. This is love. So there is no other, there's no other definition of love that can even come close to this. You want to know love? The eternal son died for me. The eternal son died for you. This is love. You can only fully understand love by knowing what Jesus has done. What does that look like? If Jesus has done this as God's expression of love for me, then what do I do? Man, I lay down my life for the brothers. Some folks get offended at church and they go to another church only to get offended again. Hey, the cycle continues. We ought to tell them now, all right? Just know right now, all right, folks? Hey, people are broken at every church. And you're going to get hurt at every church. And sometimes you do the hurting. Some folks don't want to hear that. Sometimes you do the hurting, but I love this lay down our lives for the brothers. I'm so thankful for those of you, like, I know when it came down to it, like, you would take a bullet for me. And I hope you know it, I would take a bullet for you. 
Lay down your lives for the brothers. We're going to move on. We could say this practically, 1 Corinthians 13. This is what your love looks like. Love is patient, kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You know, the world wants that kind of love, but Christ stands in their way. They celebrate that love at a wedding, but then scoff at it when they want to hate their enemy. So our love must not be like Cain's love. It must be like Jesus' love. And this is what Jesus' love does. It reconciles enemies. I think it's wonderful. Like, the Bible doesn't just call us to love the brothers. This is a test of salvation. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus says, we don't stop there as believers. We love our enemies. And we pray for those people that persecute us. I would argue that many people in the faith or that claim Christ, many people are better at loving their enemies than they are at loving their brothers. But this is what love does. It reconciles enemy. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He tells us, verse 17, if anyone has the world's good, sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? A clear manifestation of that love. But we'll keep moving. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth touched on that but isn't it interesting that he would put truth in opposition with word or talk we usually associate the truth with what is said but what what about the truth that is lived live the truth we who are teachers and preachers should take note that the truth inherently involves action so is your love derived from the Son? Is your practice born of the Father? Is your love derived from the Son? Thirdly, is your faith supported by the Spirit? <clears throat> is your faith supported by the Spirit? I'm going to go very quickly on this, okay? 19 through 24. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, or excuse me, abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And so you see it rounded out, the persons of the Trinity, children of the Father, people who love like Jesus, and are people who believe by the power of the spirit. Is your faith supported by the spirit? We'll change the question again. Is it your faith or is it your flesh? Faith or flesh? God's children live by faith 19 through 24, the central piece of that being the latter part of verse 23. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. 
All right, we can talk about the Spirit. We, we mentioned it last week, this concept, the Spirit. He is the guarantee. He is the earnest of the down payment, Ephesians 1, 13. He is the seal. So we get the presence of the Spirit now, yet we look forward to a place in the future where the Spirit has done all the work of seeing us fully shaped into the image of Christ. He is in our hearts. He testifies to our sonship, Romans 8, 14 through 16. He allows us to cry, Abba, Father. He produces in us the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Now look at verse 19, by this, he says, this is connected to the previous content, right? Righteous living, loving the brothers. Now the Spirit helps in these ways. Verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us, whenever our heart condemns us. Now, initially, when I studied this passage, I I was thinking that it had to do with conviction or regret or remorse or whatever, whether it was real or from God or not. I don't think that's the case. I think what John is saying right here, when our heart condemns us, he's saying when our heart's corruption or our sinful flesh lead us away from loving one another well. So our response to this, this resistance from God, because your heart is corrupt, this resistance from God, it reveals where our faith lies. Will we trust our own flesh? Will will we respond to the work of the Spirit? Will we embrace a false confidence in the flesh or entrust ourselves to the care of the Spirit by faith? John is arguing that when our own hearts condemn us, we can, by God's grace, persuade our hearts to act in love. He said, verse 20, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. So set your affection, set your attention, set your heart back on God. The Spirit helps you do this. So if there's any resistance to God that creeps in and causes condemnation to be upon us. And even if the enemy then plays on that condemnation by multiplying it, we must be reminded that God is greater than our hearts. The Holy Spirit is ready. And we are given the assurance by the Holy Spirit that we need. He takes us to our advocate, and then our actions come under God's perfect reign, the Lordship of Christ. You know, just moments ago, we sang, How Great Is Our God? I know it's sung as a statement, but I'll ask it as a question. How great is our God? From this text, we can say he's a whole lot greater than our hearts. Hallelujah. He has the power to take our wayward hearts, our leaning hearts, bent toward ourselves, bent toward idolatry. He's he's got the power to take those hearts and draw them back to him. He's got the power to renew them according to his word and then shape them according to his will. God is greater than our hearts. Verse 21 and 22, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask of him, We can receive from him because we 
keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So when we are driven by the Spirit to rest again on the love that is ours in Christ, we return to the confidence we have therein. And we hit that idea of assurance. It's assurance. John is driving us to assurance that comes through the presence of the Spirit that testifies to us. And as any child who makes requests of their father, this is how it happens, right? We see a commercial for a TV, or excuse me, on the TV for a, let's say a, a vehicle, a new vehicle. Every vehicle is, is astronomically expensive these days. So I may comment, man, can you believe that vehicle is, you know, MSRP, that whatever. And then maybe one of our kids would be like, hey, can we get one? Can we get one? And I'm like, hey, I'm flattered that you think I can just go buy this vehicle. Flattered, totally. Flattered. But that's how a child operates with his father. I believe you can do it. Like, there's nothing. Like, you're my dad. You can do anything, right? We can make confident requests believing that we will receive from him what is good. He gives good gifts. Verse 23, and this is the commandment. We ask because we're walking in obedience. This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. This is, in, in short statement, experiencing the generosity of God leads to more faith-filled obedience. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So I'll just conclude by asking the questions. Is your love, excuse me, is your practice born of God? Is your love derived from the Son? And is your faith supported by the Holy Spirit? I want you to have assurance of salvation. I want you to know that 1 John ministers to me in those moments where, man, I'm starting to see the errors in my life, the sin in my life, and maybe even the events that surround us cause us to look inward and say, is there something like this in me? There's something amiss in my life, in my faith. There's something amiss in my love. So as we respond, I'll be available down here to the side. If you want to pray together, if you want to confess sin, maybe you would say, look, I have not, I have not loved the brothers well. And you're repenting of that. You're saying, I want to do better. I want to love like Jesus loved. I'll be available for you. But here's what we see from this text. The true children of God have, most assuredly, God as Father. They have the love of Christ. They have the presence of the Holy Spirit seen in the way that we continue to believe. Because of these things, we practice righteousness. We love the brothers and then we live by faith. Maybe you would say, I have 
done the assurance testing and I realize I have no assurance because I don't know Jesus. Would you confess your sin to him and repent of those sins and you will be saved? The scripture said, believe on the Lord Jesus. It's repentance and faith. Surrender to him. Call him Lord. He will save you. He will lead you. He will guide you in your life. Let's respond in these ways. What are we singing? Open my eyes that I may see. Amen. Let's respond singing this as we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, we pray.